0: Christian's life, the gifting to serve others in the name of the Lord. Ten years ago, there was a stirring inside of you. He gave you a dream about what he wanted you to do in your life. Maybe he wanted you to teach children. Maybe he wanted you to sing. Maybe he wanted you to be a prayer warrior, standing in the gap for other people in need. Maybe there was even a pull toward the mission field that was birthed by the Holy Spirit himself. But then... You got discouraged. Somebody let you down. Something went sour at your church. You tried once or twice, but somebody criticized you. Soon the dream was gone. The calling wasn't so real anymore. All the inspiration you had felt was missing. Or consider the subject of marriage. The latest surveys by researcher George Barna show that the divorce rate among churchgoers is just about equal with the population at large. If I were an atheist or an agnostic, I'd say, look, how come Jesus can't keep you two together? I thought you said he was so wonderful. Why are Christian couples breaking up? Is it because they shouldn't have gotten married in the first place? Or because they came from dysfunctional homes and had bad role models? There's more to it than that. The thief comes to steal. In fact, he fully intends to destroy my marriage to Carol, even though we've served side by side in the ministry for more than 25 years. These are the realities of spiritual warfare. Only the power of Christ can keep the two of us together as God has planned and give us victory over Satan's destructive power. No honest minister of the gospel will deny the fact that the devil has made major assaults on his or her marriage. It's usually not talked about in public, but many tears are shed and prayers offered up to God as sincere servants of the Lord do battle against the demonic forces set on stealing their marriages, credibility, and effectiveness. And what about children? Our very own children, our grandchildren. They were dedicated to God in an altar once upon a time. We stood before a minister and said with all sincerity, Oh God, this baby belongs to you. But something has happened in the years since then. Now the young man or young woman is not living for God. There's no use pretending that they are. Let's not dance with ourselves. Let's not close our eyes and make believe otherwise. Before we can see God do what only he can do, we must spiritually diagnose exactly what is going on around us. Denying reality is not part of true Christian living. At the core of all these losses that I've been mentioning is the silent theft of the most crucial element in our spiritual walk, our faith. What is faith? It is total dependence upon God that becomes supernatural in its working. People with faith develop a second kind of sight. They see more than just the circumstances. They see God right beside them. Can they prove it? No. But by faith they know he's there nonetheless. Without faith, says Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please God. Nothing else counts if faith is missing. There is no other foundation for Christian living, no matter the amount of self-effort or energy spent. Nothing else touches the father's heart as much as when his children simply trust him wholeheartedly. Remember, We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're in spiritual warfare. In your life and mine, here at the beginning of the 21st century, somebody has to step up and stand in the gap, fighting for stolen property with the weapons of faith and prayer. Somebody has to go after it. Our enemy Satan has no feelings of sympathy. If you don't resist, he'll rip you off every week, all year long. That's his diabolical work. But Jesus came that we might have life, abundant life. He can revive your marriage. He can bring back fire into your soul. Your spiritual calling can bloom once again. You can recover even the faith that the devil stole. I'm not talking here about the mental assent you give to Bible truths you've heard over and over again. I'm talking about vibrant heart faith and childlike trust in the risen supernatural Christ the kind of faith that changes the way you live, talk, and feel. God can revive fresh faith in our souls if we ask Him. The only question is, do you and I really believe that our God will recover our stolen property? Or do we think that our situation is too far gone for Him? Chapter 2, the question nobody is asking. When most of us think about how we are doing spiritually, we think about surface things. We zero in on behavior patterns, such as whether we've been gossiping, have we been staying true to our marriage, have we been reading our Bibles, have we been tithing. We concentrate on outward works while forgetting that they are simply the fruit of a deeper spiritual factor. In the organized church, too many pastors are interested in attendance alone, which has nothing to do with the church's real health. What matters is not how many people are showing up, but their active, vibrant faith in the God they serve. You can easily pack a building without pleasing God. Crowds do not equal spirituality. When Paul sent Timothy to check up on the new Thessalonian church, where he had been able to only spend three weeks before getting run out of town, you would think he would have asked first about the church's growth. Did they have a building of their own yet? How many people are attending on Sundays? Were the offerings enough to cover the bills? And what about the individual people? Had they stopped swearing, drinking, carousing, going to see bad entertainment, sleeping around? Not at all. Instead, in 1 Thessalonians 3, the Apostle Paul reveals that his primary concern is for the faith level of his precious converts. He wants to take a temperature reading of their spiritual health And faith is what he is looking for. He just doesn't assume that because they are Christians, they are automatically walking in robust faith. From top to bottom, Paul is churned up about one simple word. In fact, this is more than a checkup, an inspection. He has sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. In other words, to do what he could to make the report better. Why this emphasis on faith? What Paul knew, but what we seem to have forgotten, is that when anyone breaks down in their behavior, backslides into sinful living or grows cold in the Lord, it is because their faith has broken down first. When someone's temper keeps flaring out of control, that is not the real problem. Down underneath is a weakness in faith. So it is with all of our departures from right living. My ministry goal in the Brooklyn Tabernacle is not to fill the building. It is to preach the word of God in such a way that people's faith in Christ is built up. God doesn't need the beautiful music of our choir or any other church's choir. If he wanted great music, he'd have the angels sing. They never miss a word or sing off key. But what he is really after is a people who show a strong personal faith in him. What do you think it would take to amaze Jesus? After all, through him the world and all humanity was created in the first place. He has forever existed in heaven itself. While on earth, was there anything that impressed him to the point of exclaiming, That's really something. Wow! Never in any chapter of the four Gospels was Jesus astounded by anybody's righteousness. After all, he was entirely pure and holy himself. Never was he impressed with anyone's wisdom or education. Never did he say, boy, Matthew sure is smart, isn't he? I really picked a financial genius there. But he was amazed by one thing, people's faith. Faith alone is the trigger that releases divine power. As Peter wrote, it is through faith that we are shielded by God's power. Trust in God is the spiritual mechanism that releases His grace to flow through my life and yours. Not trying, struggling, or promising. Faith is what God is after. Faith is the key to our relationship with Him. I'm not just talking about our words. Faith is far more than talk. In our time, the whole notion of faith has been derailed in some quarters into an emphasis on saying certain words giving a positive confession, announcing a super-confident description of health, prosperity, or other blessing. You know, a kind of spiritual mantra. Meanwhile, the question of a true heart faith and communion with the living Christ is hardly emphasized. Instead, a mental formula of how the Bible will work for you is front and center. This is not the spirit or message of the New Testament, and it leads to gross absurdities. It actually has dampened the desire for real prayer meetings all across the land. People cannot call out to the Lord for answers to their problems because, according to their teaching, you shouldn't even say you have a problem. To admit that you're sick or in trouble is supposedly bad. You're using your mouth to say something negative, and that is not really living by faith. If that is true, why did the Apostle James declare in James chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. How can we truly pray or ask others to pray unless we first admit we're facing some kind of real problem? Believers obviously did in the New Testament. A minister once told me that when people come to the altar in his church for individual prayer, He has trained them not to say, I have a cold, or I have diabetes, or whatever. Instead, they are to say, I have the symptoms of a cold, or I have the symptoms of diabetes. Otherwise, they would not be walking in faith. I guess when someone has stopped breathing for two weeks, they only have the symptoms of death. To me, this is little more than mind games. The faith God wants for us does not shrink from facing the reality of the problem head-on. On the other hand, there are many others going to church today in America whose faith has gone dormant. They would never admit that, of course. They would claim to have faith in God and in His Word. They stand on Sunday morning and recite the Apostles' Creed. But if you watch carefully, you will see a hybrid Christianity. You will see people who think that the object of Christianity is to read the Bible every day, try to live a good life as best they can, and thus earn God's approval. Their key word in describing the Christian life is struggle. They say things such as, I'm struggling to obey the Lord and do His will. I'm doing the best I can. We all struggle, you know. What this reveals is a Christianity focused upon our ability rather than God's. Whatever happened to the core truth of the Protestant Reformation, namely that we do not earn our way with God, but rather receive His grace by faith. Like the Galatians, we have walked away from something vital. No wonder the Apostle Paul sent them a stern letter that said, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? This is our problem today. True Christianity is rather to know Jesus and trust in Him, to rely on Him, to admit that all of our strength comes from Him. That kind of faith is not only what pleases God, it is the only channel through which the power of God flows into our lives so we can live victoriously for Him. My co-author, Dean Merrill, was at a wedding recently in which the bride's and groom's responses to the vows were not just the traditional, I do, but rather, I will, with the help of God. The minister who wrote that ceremony knew that human effort alone might not carry the young couple in today's world until death do you part. He therefore called on them to implore the help of God in building their marriage. When most people break down in their Christian life, they simply try harder. Lots of luck. Try harder with what? With what ability? I've looked inside of me and stopped looking. There's nothing in there that's good or usable. On the other hand, if I turn the other way and begin looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, I find everything I need. It does no good to try to control people and get them to behave by giving them only laws and threats about hell. That won't cut it. They won't change. How do the righteous actually live? By faith. When I was growing up, I thought the greatest Christian must be the person who walks around with shoulders thrown back because of tremendous inner strength and power, quoting scripture, and letting everyone know he has arrived. I have since learned that the most mature believer is the one who is bent over, leaning most heavily on the Lord, and admitting his total inability to do anything without Christ. The greatest Christian is not the one who has achieved the most, But rather the one who has received the most. God's grace.